Hello, everybody, and welcome to Boz to the Future, a podcast where we take our time to go a little deeper into some of the topics that affect the way that technology is going to develop over the next uh, decade or more. Couldn't have a better group with me for that discussion today. Two absolute luminaries in the field of artificial intelligence. I'm joined today by Joel Pinot and Jan LeCun. I am, uh, Jan's previously told me that there is no chance I will ever pronounce his name actually correctly, so that is the best I'm capable of. Um, I, I, the thing that, these are people who probably don't need a major introduction, but I'll do it a little bit of it anyways. I want you two to, two to be ready though, because I usually have our guests introduce themselves so the guests can decide what's actually relevant to the audience. Um, the context of today's discussion is the 10 year anniversary of FAIR. Jan LeCun, of course, the chief AI scientist uh, for us here at Meta, and Joel, who leads FAIR for us, our fundamental AI research group, uh, which is one of the uh, research institutions who has developed the core technology that's powered the you know, generative AI large language model revolution that we're all kind of part of today. Uh, but at the same time, it's also only, it's only a part of what we see as the long-term vision that we're pursuing with our research there. So I'm joined with two absolute uh, brilliant people in the field. I've told this story before, but it's too good not to, for me to tell again. Um, I got to uh, this company, got to Facebook at the time when a, a Mark told a recruiter he needed somebody uh, who knew artificial intelligence. She asked him who he knew. And he said, well, I know this one guy because I was his teaching fellow in introduction to artificial intelligence. That's not the cool part of the story. The cool part of that story is that in that class, we taught neural networks a, uh, as a once thought to be great, now known to be dead technology. <laughs> and that was, of course, in the year 2003. Uh, uh, and how the tables have turned. I did come and I got to work on artificial intelligence here, uh, but it didn't look anything like what it looks like today at the time. And I'm woefully, um, you know, uh, uh, out of depth compared to uh, the modern experts in the field who I am joined with today. So, so thrilled to have you both. Um, Joel, why don't we start with you? Give what do you think the audience needs to know about you to to contextualize uh, your work today? Well, pleasure to be here with you for for this conversation. Um, I'm a I'm really an Kim from an AI researcher at heart, and and in real life, you know, I I was trained in robotics. Um, I did a lot of work on applications of AI to healthcare, decision making, um, building language models, dialogue systems, and so on and so forth. Um, in most recent years, I've had the pleasure to support our FAIR team, um, and in that role, I'm really passionate about making sure that we keep a long-term vision on solving the key problems in AI, doing it in a way that's responsible, doing it in a way that leverages uh, the community at large, and so leaning on open research to, to really accelerate our progress and do it in a way that's collaborative. Yeah, this is, and, and I think uh, you, your research speaks for itself, and anyone in the field obviously is familiar. For people who are out to the field, it's funny, is, is Joel's probably one of the most uh, important and powerful figures in our industry uh, in terms of, you know, the, the talent that she's supporting, uh, the budget that she's overseeing and, and managing, and, and the direction that she provides, Mark Zuckerberg, myself, uh, the, uh, Chris Cox, the entire leadership team here, on, on how we can invest to make sure that we are on that path towards uh, a more uh, capable, uh, responsible uh, future in artificial intelligence. Uh, my next uh, uh, introduction is going to be short, somewhat shorter because I think Jan holds uh, quite a bit of presence both inside the AI community and also beyond, especially with his advocacy for the last uh, year or two as it relates to openness. But I do want to make sure I give you a chance. Is there something that you think people might not know that they need to know more about to, to understand your, your context, Jan? There's, there's already too many things people know about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, when you're extremely online uh, and yeah. you're out in the, in the, in the discourse. No, there's, there's one thing people should know about me, which is that, uh, you know, I founded FAIR, I run it for five years, but it turns out I'm, I'm, I'm an absolutely terrible administrator. And uh, so I'm really super glad that Joel is doing it. <laughs> that's, that's right. But much better at this than I am. Well, we make a, we make a good team here, I like to think, and uh, I do my best to keep up with the two of you. The, the context of this discussion today, so, so what are, the way we try to structure this uh, podcast may be differently. I find a lot of podcasts go really broad. As a consequence, they don't tend to go as deep. Um, but this one, I wanted to go deep. We are 10 years in on FAIR. Um, and again, fundamental AI research, this is a, something that Meta is very proud of. We've been investing a lot in for a long time to make sure that 
we're not just participating and 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 reaping the benefit of research, but it, really advancing the state of the uh, state of research, and that we're doing it one thing that differentiates FAIR from some of the other similar research institutions that you might hear about is our commitment to doing so with open research. Uh, we're open, you know, things like Llama uh, and Llama 2 um, are the most recent famous examples, but it goes way back farther than that to the very, very earliest period of time. Self-supervised learning, one of the really critical breakthroughs, you know, if you look at the early research being published through FAIR, uh, you know, this is all stuff that we've really tried to be as open as possible with it. I want to hear from the two of you, and let's, Jan, let's start with you since you've been here for the full the, the full ten uh, from the very very first day. What do you see about um, the conviction? What, what's important to you about having a vision of AI research like that? Well, actually, that was part of uh, a very first discussion I had with with Mark and and Shred, the CTO at the time. Um, I asked them, um, you know, if if we want to make real progress in AI. We're going to have to be able to uh, uh, share our results, collaborate with universities and uh, perhaps other institutions, and uh, open source code, um, particularly if it's platform code. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, is it possible? And they say, oh, you don't have to worry about this. This is in the DNA of the company. We open source stuff all the time, even our hardware design. And I said, yes, that's the place I want to be in. <laughs> um, so. Um, and and you know it's important for a number of reasons to do open research. There there is the the fact that the the problem of making progress in AI is really a scientific question. Uh, so mm. particularly at the moment, like a lot of people think that we've solved AI and we, it's just a matter of engineering now. It, that's that's not true. There's still a lot of really kind of completely unsolved uh, conceptual problems to solve, and it's really a scientific research problem. And we don't have a monopoly on good ideas as much as I'd like to think that <laughs> we have all the smartest people in the domain. Um, there's a lot of ideas that come from all kinds of different places. So, um, you know, collaboration is a good way of accelerating progress. And in fact, a reason why AI has made so much progress so quickly in the last few years is because the community had embraced open research um, and uh, in part because of our influence. Uh, we, yeah, we had a right. big impact on other uh, research labs as well, and and the the whole you know, pollution quickly and and uh, and open sourcing everything, uh, and the idea there is a bit like you know the the whole Linux mantra you know uh, yeah. or the the cathedral and the cathedral and the bazaar the bazaar model of open source, release early, release often, uh, it works for it works for research as well. The more you communicate, the faster things go. Um, but then there were other reasons, like, you know, you can only attract the best researchers if you tell them that they have to publish the results. If you tell them they have to publish a result, you also get better quality research. Um, and you get, you know, better prestige and you can attract better people, et cetera. So there's all kinds of reasons for this. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we um, sometimes we do feel that uh, people kind of pay attention to Llama and they think, oh, you guys are just coming around to open source. No, if you go back, you know, segment anything, the massively multilingual stuff that we've done, um, you know, this, going back, PyTorch, PyTorch, and then even before Fair, to your point, uh, we were major contributors to major open source projects from the very earliest period of, of my involvement with the company, which at this point, man, is almost 18 years. Um, and so I think if you look at the history here, I think people, because they're only becoming conscious of AI more recently, they think this is a recent change, but this has been a commitment for us for a long time. Actually, you raised an interesting question I want to pose to, to Joel. If, uh, when you joined, Joel, uh, from, where, from where the technology was when you joined to where we are today, would you say that we've made more progress than you expected? What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, that's <laughs> what's the most fascinating point of looking at this over this particular decade of AI. You know, I think we have to go back to when FAIR was created, 2013. It was just the inflection point mm. where deep learning was starting to show its promise. It was only showing the promise at that time, mostly in computer vision tasks. Um, and but that was enough to create, you know, the conviction that that we mm -hmm. needed to do more of this inside the company. Um, when I joined in 2017, I actually joined because I wanted to build chatbots. That was the main reason. I was doing some of that work in my own academic lab with, you know, the, the means that you have in an academic lab. And some of the best work in the world was being done at FAIR by people like Jason Weston, Antoine Bord, Ilan Bourreau, and others with whom I then had the pleasure of um, working. And so my thinking was, you know, like, 
you know, let's just go and do this together rather than compete. You know, we have the opportunity to do so much more, more by working together. So that was my, that was the initial um, thing that got me here. And, you know, we talked about our decade of open science. This isn't just us speaking. You know, people can go whether on GitHub, whether on Archive, like that trajectory is there. Those papers from 2016, 2017 are still, are still there, are still available. They're still read and they're still influential. Yeah, and they're heavily cited. The, yeah, some of these results, for example, on memory networks from around that time really were influential. We forget that today, but a lot of the clues of how to build the type of chatbots we're seeing today in the large language models were already there. And so like I had no idea of the trajectory. And the last year in particular has been really fascinating to, to be part of and to help drive that, that innovation. But it was very, very hard to predict uh, five or six years ago. Yeah, this is one where uh, what's been interesting to me is, um, and this is one of the reasons I think that the 10-year view to pick a view, we're obviously we're not stopping at 10, but like the, the long view is so important, is that the progress is unpredictable. Uh, you know, there would have been points between the very founding affair and now, where we would have all said, you'd have pulled all three of us, and we'd have said, now we're making slower progress than we thought on some of these things. You know, I thought we'd make more progress. And then you have a breakthrough, and so you evaluate it, you know, a few months later, and like, nope, we've made more, <laughs> we've made more progress than we expected, uh, because these, these things accumulate in this really uneven, nonlinear fashion where something sparks something else, it sparks something else that, that creates the compounding. And it's not just a compounding of knowledge and wisdom that's being shared, also talent and experience. Uh, you know, people who've come up and had a chance to be interns in these organizations and have, a, have had a chance to do postdocs to these organizations, they, you know, they kind of bring all that with them to the next piece. So there's a community that's, that's quite a bit bigger than it was, both at FAIR, obviously, but also across the industry, um, you know, from 10 years ago. Um, now, uh, it's fun to look at the last 10 years and, and have that comparison. Um, but the other thing that I think people get wrong is on the flip side. And you, yeah, you mentioned this earlier, you thought some people think we've done it, like AI is done, um, which we don't believe. And you know, when we look towards the next 10 years, the roadmap that we have, man, it's even maybe more exciting and, uh, to me than the roadmap that we had the last 10 years in terms of what we have ahead of us. Yeah, do you want to talk more about what it is that you think is missing from the current generation of AI technology that, that is going to power FAIR for 10 years into the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's, that's the reason I was, I was saying before that I think this is still very much a research problem, not, not just an engineering problem. Um, so uh, we have AI systems that can apparently uh, pass the bar exam. <laughs> and, and, you know, do things of that type, right? Uh, certainly produce text that is uh, kind of a, a good help for like a first uh, first draft of a document or something like this. Um, to some extent, they can answer a question occasionally correctly. But um, we still don't have level five self-driving cars and certainly not self-driving cars that can learn to drive in 20 hours of practice like any 17-year-old. Right. Um, we don't have... Uh, domestic robots that can clear up the dinner table and fill up the dishwasher, a task that any 10-year-old can learn in one shot in a few minutes. Convincing the 10-year-old is another story. But, <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of tasks that are, you know, can be learned by uh, your house cat that we just are nowhere near being able to reproduce with, mm. uh, you know, trainable robots. So we're missing something really, really big. And it's uh, the ability that, uh, living things have to understand the world and then use that understanding to plan um, actions, action sequences. Uh, this is what, you know, this is more like Joelle's specialty, actually. That's what she she worked on for, for a PhD. But um, but this is, this is just something we're very far from being able to reproduce. So um, it's, it's a constant history in AI that uh, there's multiple phenomena, right? The, the first phenomenon is there are things that we can do with AI that seem sophisticated and complex for humans. Um, and then there are things that humans take for granted or even animals can do and that we still can't reproduce with AI. Mm -hmm. And so what that yeah. tells you is that AI is not a linear, you know, intelligence is not a, a linear thing. It's a collection of skills and an ability to learn new ones. And, and depending on how you 
conceive the system, you might have different sets of abilities and ability, abilities to learn new ones. Um, so th there's no such thing as sort of a linear scale of intelligence, really. Mm -hmm. uh, some animals are smarter than we are in certain domains, for example, and certainly computers are, you know, can beat us at chess and go and poker and, uh, and can do, you know, uh, numerical, you know, arithmetics much faster than we are and even solve integrals uh, symbolically. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot to, to figure out. How, how is it that we understand the world? Um, how is it that we can plan complex actions uh, by decomposing them into uh, other actions? How is it that we can fix ourselves a long-term goal and then figure out sub-goals before we get there and then sort of realize those sub-goals? Um, we have no idea how to do this with AI systems. And to me, that's a very essential part of uh, intelligence going forward. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, there's something about, I've always used it uh, colloquially to say the like common sense. There's a funny thing that's missing in, in, in these, uh, in all these brilliant machines that we get to interact with. And they're wonderful, these tasks, as you say. Uh, and I think the number of narrow, specific domains that they can excel at is unbounded. We can keep finding the data sets and tuning them, tuning them. Uh, and yet there's still something fundamental missing about just like that, that every human uh, and many, many mammals and probably other uh, types of animals know that like is missing. And, and there's, there's not a path to adding that with more data or more compute. There's some other structure, some other structural thing that's, that's, that's not there yet. Well, we'd um, like to be able to do it with less data, right? Because yeah, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. To train an LLM. Uh, to get you know anywhere close to being useful uh, is you know would take twenty thousand years or something for a human to read, and still <laughs> you know still the system aren't able to understand that you know if a is the same as b then b is the same as a, they don't totally. even understand that if a is larger than b and b is larger than c then a is larger than c, right? So right. Um, with that much training, so uh, the future is to figure out how to get those machines as smart as we are with as little data as we use to train ourselves. Yeah, no, it's incredible. We have a, we seem to have a, a very general base model that we uh, that we all inherit uh, and and work work off of. One of the things that I enjoy, you mentioned this earlier. One thing that I do want to call out, you know, there are some times when we don't manage to open source or open research. Uh, there's a couple of reasons we might do that. We try to weigh the benefits and the cost. So at every point, we are trying to be responsible when we open source something. When we don't, we're always trying to advance science as much as we can within the, the confines of, of being responsible. But when we talk about yeah, this, this, these, uh, the next 10 years, we talk about the future of, of AI. It's all good and fine for the three of us to join a chorus of many people who agree that the current generation of AI is not AGI. It's not a, a general intelligence uh, a th threat, but that is obviously something that occupies people uh, quite a bit. The, the concept of what, how will AI develop and how will it be aligned with us and, and how we respond to that. Joel, I kind of wanted to ask you on this. You mentioned the responsibility piece, which is something that we take seriously in every vertical of our work, as well as doing horizontally, there's work that's embedded inside of all of our processes. How do you approach running a research lab that's working on this kind of technology when there are these kinds of, you know, almost existential questions swirling about? Yeah, a lot of my job is to make sure they don't become existential questions right. and to kind <laughs> of like bring them into the work in a way that, you know, is manageable and that we can embed it into the work. A lot of how we think about this really depends on the maturity of the work. So we have some work that is very, very early, early on. And, and some of this is some of the things that Jan was talking about, like how do we embed notions of reasoning and, and planning and so on. Um, we have ideas. We don't know how to solve it yet. We have ideas. And in that case, we may have many, many different ideas. And we'll go through a big hypothesis space before we have an idea that that sticks. And then we go to the mid phase where we have an idea that seems promising enough. We'll try it with more data, more evaluation, bigger team of people really working on this. And then if that you know, has enough promise, we'll work with a team that can bring that to, to more people, whether through one of our products or, or, or more concrete use cases. So along that lifetime, you need a very different approach to responsibility. Very early on, you need to be thoughtful about the ethics of it. Are you mm -hmm. asking the right question? Do you have the right people around the table? And really being thoughtful of how you frame the problem. When you get to the later phase of the work, you can have a much clearer idea of what are the potential risks and harms of that technology. So there we can derive, we can have a taxonomy for different risks. We can embed mitigations into some of this. If we talk about you know, privacy risks, 
make mm -hmm. sure that we're not leaking information, that faces are not visible and so on and so forth. When we talk about safety risks, we can use red teaming, these kinds of protocols. So depending yep. on the type of risk, there's different techniques we can use. So we may hold back from releasing, but then that feeds back to our research teams. Totally. And we have researchers who are interested in digging into these problems. Recently this year, we released a method called Stable Signature that gives new techniques for watermarking information. It applies to images and we're bootstrapping that into some mm. of our other projects. So there's also that feedback mechanism um, that, that we use frequently to inspire and spin off new research projects. And for me, at least, one of the things that's interesting is so often we find with research, actually, you know, this is a point that you've made to me many times, uh, the ability to work in an environment where you've got, um, yeah, not just your research happening, but there's research happening around it that helps make it safe, that helps get you, make sure the data is, is clean, that make sure the data is, you know, um, you can use it and, and build models based on that safely and use the results of those models. Um, that's one of the reasons I think it's hard to, the, one of the reasons there's not many labs like this. Uh, it, it really takes commitment, not just of, of resources and personnel and, and those kinds of things. You have to do all the pieces around it. You have to do the data gathering and the cleaning and you have to do the, and goodness knows computes its own challenge. I, I'll, I'll admit that. Uh, but, but really you can't go halfway into this thing and end up with the same quality of research at the end. And you have to have that long-term commitment. Actually, Jan, you, you just tweeted this the other day. We talk about this all the time. You know, if you're a tremendous AI researcher, as both of you happen to be, um, you want to, you, you know, you know, this work is going to take you three, five, 10 years. You only have so many shots in your career. Uh, and you don't want, you don't want to miss any shots. Like you can't get, you know, a, a year and a half into a project and then you got to walk or you can't, you know, finish the project for some kind of reason. So the long-term commitment makes a huge difference as well. Uh, and, and the, you know, I really, I mean, you got to hold me to this Joel, but I really don't decide how this research lab allocates its resources. You know, we try to make sure that there's a big envelope uh, and we certainly have conversations with, with Zuck about how, how big the envelope is and what we can do in that envelope. But then it's really up to, to you guys to figure out how you're going to make the right use of it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not an easy task in the sense that, you know, honestly, there's such an exciting space of hypothesis. There's so many projects we could take on. We have on a regular basis have to make some choices of, um, you know, how many projects to pursue. What's, what's most important to me is when we walk away from a project, we do it for the right reasons. And mm -hmm. that is because we don't think it works. Yeah. <laughs> because we don't think this has a promise to helping us solve important problems in AI. And we do that all the time. And I'm happy to be walking away from projects when it's for the right reasons. We don't want to be walking away from projects because we don't have the right expertise of people, because we mm -hmm. don't have the right data, because we can't train the model and all these other reasons. So a lot of what we try to navigate is, you know, how do we make sure to pursue the hypothesis, the projects that have the most opportunity to be successful and also to, to to bring value and to really you know shed light on the mysteries of intelligence and how do we you know cut off the the projects that either don't need to be done or sometimes there's projects that others are better off doing mm -hmm. i mean we have a lot of collaborators in academia in other labs we have a healthy startup ecosystem Sometimes it's okay that other people across the ecosystem are taking on some of the research questions and with our commitment to open research you know, we help them, they help us, and we sort of we sort of move along um, in a way that is is much more you know collaborative and democratic than than might be happening in other places. Yeah, and so one thing that I kind of want to tie off that end of that answer there is we do philosophically think about this work. I think you know sometimes a lot of the discussion in public is about the current engineering side of it, as you would put it, Jan, or or and, and those are very exciting areas. And they're incredibly research adjacent. I mean, so much of the work that we want to do uh, with large language models, multimodality, context windows, all these pieces are research problems. Like they're fundamental research problems where we actually don't even know how to do them in a way that's that's scalable, that's efficient, and so on and so forth. So there's an adjacency there. There's immediate research problems that need to be solved. And there's these long-term research problems. We also balance across those pieces. But while we're doing all of this engineering and science, um, you guys both uh, are really very thoughtful about the philosophy of what it is that we are doing here. Um, I mean, Jan, you're you're often in discussions, in Q and A's, and and in forums where you're talking about what is the nature of intelligence. I wonder how much of the reaction that people have to AI uh, and some of the kind of more uh, scary scenarios they imagine is it does feel uh, like you know for the first time there's some kind of a 
an analog to human intelligence, and I, I think it, it can be unsettling for people. Uh, how do you how do you think about um, the relationship between artificial intelligence and human intelligence, at least as we see it today? Yeah, I think I think actually this this kind of uh, reaction from uh, community at large, the public in particular, with respect to AI, has existed for decades. You know, even in the mm -hmm. early days of computers, right? Computers were called electronic brains, right? And mm -hmm. and there were you know, articles in the New York Times and the press about, you know, how computers were faster than than humans at certain tasks, et cetera. So people have always felt threatened by uh, machines that can reproduce some of the functionalities of the of the mind. Um, the thing is, um, there is there is a, a big uh, sort of misunderstanding there, which is that uh, uh, even if we have machines that are more intelligent than us in a number of uh, of tasks, the result is that they amplify our own intelligence, right? Mm -hmm. Or collect intelligence of uh, machines plus humans. And you know, even if we in the future have machines that are smarter than us in all the domains where we are smart, they will still work for us. Mm -hmm. And so it's a bit like. You know, Joel and I, you know, have been leaders of research organizations, and what we try to do is hire people who are smarter than us. Right. <laughs> That's right. And we're happy if we do that, right? So we're familiar with, you know, working with uh, entities that are smarter than us. And uh, I think that's something that, you know, everybody should be excited about uh, in the future, where, you know, all of our interaction with the digital world will be mediated by AI systems that may eventually be smarter than us and they will assist us in our daily lives. And, uh, you know, it's a long-term vision, but um, there's, there's a, a good chance it, it will happen. Um, but, but yeah, it asks, you know, it poses the question of really what's the nature of, uh, of human intelligence. Uh, you know, science has kept kind of bringing down humanity from its pedestal. And that's just another step. And I, you know, I agree, and, and I, but I also think you're absolutely right. It, uh, it reveals something maybe even more true about what it is to be fundamentally human. I, you know, I, I use this this story a lot, but it, it's a great one. When Deep Blue beat uh, Gary Kasparov in chess, we didn't stop playing chess. We're playing chess more than ever. Chess is more popular than it's maybe ever been. There's Twitch streamers making bank, streaming and commentating chess games on the internet. And we're studying the moves that Deep Blue did to learn more about the game. And the same happened with AlphaGo. Um, and I, so I do think it's, it's, there's something really elegant about this idea. Actually, uh, Joel, <laughs> this is really hot off the presses, and maybe I get myself into some trouble here. But Joel, you just, just yesterday sent me a document where you talked about how uh, it's the collective human intelligence that's the real prize. It's not the intelligence of any one person. It's the collaboration between many, many people that really has is what drives progress as we see it as a society. Um, and that was had me thinking about how much in my career, I like to think I'm a decent manager. I've certainly had a, some amount of success doing it. I would not be where I am if I hadn't had great managers myself, people who mentored me and taught me, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg, Mike Shrepford among them. Um, uh, and you think about any writer who's worth their salt has a great editor. Uh, you know, uh, any almost any paper of, of meaningful significance has somebody who's a collaborator on it, uh, has citations that they're putting on it. it. It's so hard for me to think of examples. Not that there's none, but there's not many examples of people just going off truly on their own and just doing work that is of, of tremendous meaning and tremendous value. Not zero examples, but it's not the norm. The norm by often is, is almost in almost every industry. In, in software engineering, we do code reviews. Every single, no matter how good an engineer you are, you have somebody else check the code. I think of this all the time uh, as it relates to artificial intelligence as we have it today as being, you know, the real bottleneck for a long time might actually have been that, might actually have been people's access to that kind of expertise, education, mentorship, you know, friendship even, um, and how important those pieces are. I wonder how much the current generation um, changes that. Um, it, it is a, a truly interesting uh, point of view and a, and a wonderful kind of experience for us to be able to start to play with you know, yeah, these these AIs as editors, as peers, as an independent voice. It's. I mean, I mean I just let me well, let please. me yeah <laughs> let me bounce off of that uh, because uh, when it's something I've been thinking about quite a bit uh, recently. On the the one hand, I think this year has been so interesting because 
for the first time, many people got their hands on an AI system. They were able sure. to interact with that AI system. And if anything, you know, that interaction between people and the system what yielded what we call this data flywheel, like people are interacting with more with AI agents. So we have more data, which we can then, you know, use to to improve the agent. So that that data flywheel is something that that didn't exist nearly to the same scale uh, before mm -hmm. this year. It's been huge, and and we're still starting to see what will be the what will be the effect of that on how the behavior of the agents change. Um, what we haven't done is be super thoughtful of how we deploy whole populations of AI agents. Right now, mostly it's you know one person, one AI agent together in a binary interaction, and we're starting more and more to deploy several of them together. Yet most of the work we've done is training one of them. Um, and so that's both an amazing opportunity, but but there's also you know a lot of failure modes if we don't if we don't get this right. You know I've I've been following the self-driving car industry for a long time. Um, I did my PhD studies in robotics. I have many friends in that space, and one of the things is you know we spent so many times agonizing about the so-called trolley problem. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with it, but you yep, know this sure. this this ethical choice of if you you have two paths to follow and you know would you rather hit you know one person versus another? How do you get the machine to make the right decision? In reality, what we've seen over the last few months is is not trolley problems that is getting in our way. It is traffic jams that right. are getting in our way. And we are seeing <laughs> yeah. self-driving cars just being told to get out of the road because they're causing these massive traffic jams. And so really that right. interaction between all the agents is so tricky to get right. And yeah. we have so much important work to do in that space. So it'll be it'll be an interesting next decade. Yeah, humans almost never get deadlocked. Like we <laughs> it's like we have there's enough like random variance between how we react to situation. We just it never like I remember asking the, in in traffic class when I was a 15 year old in California. What happens if all four cars get to the stop sign at the exact same time? <laughs> For those who are curious, I'm pretty sure the answer is the westernmost car goes first. Nobody knows which one is the westernmost car. It never happens. Someone just says, "Hey, I'm going," and they just do it. Yes. You know. <laughs> I'm teaching a teenager how to drive, and how much of it is sort of the body language that you have to develop. Oh my goodness! And our self-driving cars don't know necessarily how to do that sort of social communication yeah you're looking through the window are they are they on their phone you got to steer clear because they're not they're not even going to see it you know they, they're totally absolutely right i want to i want to make sure we so I, I hope people who are listening appreciate a little deep dive into fair how it works why we set it up the way we did and and also how we think of these stuff in the past and the future at the high level i want to get a little deeper on where we are today and some get some predictions i want to get some predictions on the record predictions of the the cornerstone of, of of science of course we you guys are really the ones can in control more than i am of whether these predictions come true or not but i guess i'd like to get some predictions from each of you what do you think is the biggest like let's go let's not go 10 years out we have a good sense of that uh let's say in a in a, in a sense two or three years out what is what do you think is the biggest impact in the world from the large language models okay well i have a rather unusual opinion about this that, that you're aware of uh, which is, I, I think, the large language models of the type that we are seeing today uh, are not going to be around anymore 10 years from now. We're going to use, we're going to have something else. We're going to have AI systems that can uh, understand the world, the physical world. They can learn from video, or they can learn from vision, like babies, right? Like your cat. Right. Um, they can uh, remember stuff. Current LLM cannot remember stuff. Uh, they'll be able to uh, reason which current LLMs can't really do, at least very superficially only. And also we'll have systems that can plan. Um, current LLMs basically produce one word after the other without really thinking about it in advance, right? It's, it's this, this so-called autoregressive prediction. Um, and what we need is systems that basically can, can plan their answer. If we want them to be able to use tools to uh, have agency, um, to like interrogate a search engine or something, uh, they have to be able to predict what the effect of those actions will be mm -hmm. uh, before they can figure out the sequence of actions to arrive at a particular goal. And more importantly, they'll have to be uh, goal-driven or objective-driven. So current LLMs basically, you know, they work. You give them a prompt, and and because of the statistics of the training data, they will answer that prompt in a particular way. But it's because of the statistics of the training data. What we need are systems that where you specify your goal. And the system figures out an answer that satisfies this goal. And that goal may include uh, you know, a goal that 
measures to what extent the the action or the answer um, fulfills the the requirement from the from the user, but also may have guardrails that prevent the system from doing stupid things or dangerous things or you... toxic things, right? Um, and and so the architecture of AI systems ten years from now would be very different from what they currently are. And so it's a mistake to kind of try to imagine an extrapolation of their current mm -hmm. uh, behavior and uh, imagine they'll be kind of more of the same. They'll be very different. Where do you think the current generation maxes out? Like what's the biggest and best impact that you get from the current generation of large language models? I think they're basically maxing, maxing out already. So we're I mean, kind of, we're there now from a technological perspective. They haven't been deployed all the places they could be deployed, but from what the technology is, we're approaching that max. All right, well, yeah, this, what, this, this be, is the kind of spicy take that's going to drive this podcast viewership <laughs> through the roof. I love it. No, that's going to be a lot of applications of current autoregress LLMs, right? That are totally all practical, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, the problems that they're currently facing, hallucination, you know, things like that are going to be kind of mitigated to some extent uh, for practical applications. I think you're going to see a lot of vertical applications for information systems, dialogue systems, et cetera, uh, writing aids, et cetera. Uh, that are going to, you know, simplify a lot of people's lives. And, uh, you know, my prediction is that they'll be based on open source uh, uh, foundation models. Um, and it's kind of necessary if you want those systems to basically, you know, become the repository of all human knowledge and culture. Yeah, this um, is the idea that there's a there's a Wikipedia version of this, where if you have enough right. knowledge in the base model, you it's collectively owned and, and managed. There's a There's a tremendous benefit there that everyone can use. Yeah, it's collectively trained, right, by people yeah. around the world, right? Because you know we need, well, we can't we can't just train it with you know whatever data happens to be available on the internet, <laughs> which is English, right? Right. Um, so um, so that that's uh, you know that's the future, right? Current technology is going to be useful, but if we're thinking about like you know real progress towards like more intelligent systems, you know the future where uh, you know we're wearing our you know augmented reality glasses. That's right. And, you know, obviously, we, we just have to solve the display problem, right? But I'm working on that, here. too. Actually, you guys are working on that with us, which is another great project oh. that we, we partner with Fairon. We can't give the details on that one, but a little <laughs> Easter egg for those who, who are listening in. We, Fair is a, is a major partner for us on, on some of the display work we're doing in, in the AR. I won't give more details than that, though. That's the right. So, so, you know, the future where, you know, some years from now, where we all have our augmented reality glasses and our intelligent assistant lives in it, lives in it right? Or, or in the cloud, but we were talking to it and interacting with it through uh, voice, through vision, through you know EMG interfaces and and things like that, and they help us in our uh, in our daily lives. Then those things have to you know become the repository of all human knowledge and, and culture, right? And um, it's very important for this to be diverse and to be uh, and to be open. Uh, well, listen, I think you're going to find no argument on the diversity and openness point, although certainly you'll, you've, you've already found no shortage of argument about where LLMs tap out in the industry. As you know, I tend to agree with you. Um, Joel, I want to put this to you now, same kind of idea. Uh, we've got the kind of a 10-year sense of it. Where do you think the current generation gets to in a couple of years? Yeah, and, and you know, honestly, this is what's wonderful to be working with a lab like FAIR is, you know, we can affo afford to have people like Jan and, and, and others really thinking about the 10-year vision and really building towards that. And we can afford to have other projects that are looking more at the two to three-year vision. Um, and, 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 you know, they feed off of each other on a daily totally. basis. And more on a, you know, if I look at like a two-year horizon, I think I, I, I'm... Maybe a little bit more <laughs> optimistic than Jan that we still have quite a bit to squeeze out of the current generation of model, in the sense that you know I think there's so much more we can do in terms of bringing in multimodality. You know, right now they're very language focused, but there's so much more information to bring in into that similar architecture. We can be thoughtful about bringing in multiple languages. We can be thoughtful also about you know bringing in things that are akin to language that aren't necessarily language. We talk a lot about coding and having sort of coding buddies and, and building that out. And in, in there's really, really interesting ways in which learning to build models of code could be one of the keys to unblocking some of the things that Jan is talking about in terms of reasoning and, and more structured predictions and so on and so forth. So 
I still think within a couple of years, we have good work to do on this generation to, to bring all of that together. And when we do that, it will give us, you know, a lot of agility in terms of, of having buddies, companions, assistants, agents that are, that are deployed um, really more closer to, to how people work every day. I've been telling people for a little bit to put my own predict, prediction on the pile, just so we're not, no one's uniquely exposed on their predictions here. Um, I think the biggest impact of the current generation of technology will still be behind the scenes. In the same way that it was, I thought it was a really well put earlier, we talked about how, what's interesting about ChatGPT uh, uh, interface, which really became an inspiration for, for us, for Llama, for Claude, for a bunch of other people. That interface was quite novel because it put human in the loop of the AI, which where they hadn't really been in a direct loop with the AI before. Um, and that, you know, I'm using that language because it harkens back to the very early human in the loop concepts that we had that drove computing, that drove JCR Licklider and Doug Engelbart and others to think about how we got to the current generation of computing. So human in the loop AI feels like a really cool thing and novel and interesting and fun and probably still not the biggest impact that large language models will have on people's lives in the same way that they've been interacting with AIs every time they've logged into Facebook since we launched Newsfeed. Um, they've been interacting with AI every time they use Google. They've been interacting with AI, but the AI isn't the interface. The AI is the thing behind the scene powering the interface. I think that will still be true for large language models in three years. I think the biggest impact will be the way that they help us understand, categorize, you know, things like integrity and identifying harmful content. Um, these are famously hard problems. These are whack-a-mole kind of problems because the, the attackers are constantly doing these subtle tweaks they're the kind of things that large language models crush at is those types of, of adversarial pieces. One of the reasons I know Jan and I have been so vocal in our uh, support for especially open source, but, but large language models being having broad access to people is that I think they are more viable for defense than they are for attack uh, in almost all these different domains. Uh, so I think a lot of the value that people will get from large language models, they won't even know they're getting from large language models. They're just services that will just get better, will be delivered more efficiently, uh, more accurately. Um, and so I think that's, I, I predict until we get turn the corner on some of the pieces that Jan is doing, the direct to consumer AI will still be a novelty, interesting, useful in some niches relative to the infrastructural one. For me, the big breakthrough is theory of mind. If you think about the augmented reality use case, if you think about the self-driving use case, what you really need is a theory of mind. We don't think about it this way, but when we're driving down the street, we have developed a little pocket in our heads of what we think every other driver around us is trying to accomplish. And this is something that children do at a very, very young age. If my, uh, when my children were pre-verbal, if they saw me attempting to like put a block uh, in a place, they'll come over and try to put the block in the place. Like they can see, they have a theory of what I'm trying to accomplish in my head that they can actualize, even though they don't understand a word and can't speak a word. And so the piece that we had, you know, right now, the AIs don't have any theories at all, really, if you think about it <laughs> substantially, but like, they still don't have theory of mind. And that's the, the thing I, I really want. I think as soon as we have that, now your AI assistant, even when you don't say the right thing, understands what your intentionality is and can assist in that intentionality. Even if they just see you fumbling through the, the world with your hands, like they can understand an intentionality and help adapt to that. And likewise, how they're going to help you interact with other people. You have to have that critical piece. That's my number one missing uh, AI feature request that we'll, you guys can get right on with the research lab. Well, um, the, you know, it's just, the theory of mind is a is a model of another agent, right? That's right. That's the special case of what we call a world model. Uh, so one of the big missing pieces. So in some ways, I'm sort of hundred percent agreeing with you. The big missing piece that we have in AI system today that we don't have. Is uh, is is world models. So what's a world model? It's it's a thing that tells you here is the state of the world at time t. Mm -hmm. What is going to be the state of the world at time t plus one, whatever the unit of time is, and more precisely, here is the state of the world at time t. An action is being taken by me or by someone else. What is going to be the state of the world at time t plus one? If you have such a world model, then you can plan because you can figure out yeah. a sequence of action. What is going to be the outcome of a sequence of actions, right? And if you have a goal to fulfill, you can now figure out the sequence of actions that will fulfill that goal because you can predict the consequences of, of your actions. Now, you can, you can have a, a world model of the physical world 
you can have a model of yourself. So, you know, what's going to sure. happen if I, you know, move my arm in a particular way, if I jump in a particular way, things like that. And you can also have a model of other agents and that's theory of mind, right? So it's a special case of one model, really. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm always struck, uh, Douglas Hofstetter in his book, uh, I Am a Strange Loop, which I really find a wonderful exploration of consciousness and, and what it means to be conscious. He has this, uh, in his conception of it, if you have a theory of mind of someone else, you actually have a little them. Like you have a little, in his conception of it, like a, a true, a version of their consciousness. And so it's if someone that you lived with for a long time, you have a very complete mo like consciousness of that, like a very complete simulation of their consciousness running in your brain. And since your brain is itself a simulation of, of your consciousness, like it's just a version of them that's kind of right there. Uh, so normally we do a kind of rapid fire thing. Uh, I want to do something different. I kind of want to ask you guys about this question. I think it's just a sharp question. What do you what do you think about the question of consciousness as it relates to artificial intelligences? Um, so I I think consciousness is an illusion. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> uh, I'm loving that. Just setting you on up for the for this, we're putting all these quotes on the on the podcast episode, so we'll get all the downloads. Yeah, I think consciousness is. <laughs> no, I mean, it's 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 more like um, you know you need some sort of. Uh, uh, sub-module in your mind to control the rest of your mind, like to set goals for it and to focus it on a particular task. And uh, what that means is that this sort of executive system has to have a model of the rest of your mind. And that may be what gives us the uh, illusion of consciousness. I think it might be like some folk theory that I have is that it could be a theory of the, it could be a consequence of the fact that we basically have a single engine that we use as a world model uh, in our frontal cortex or prefrontal cortex, yep. that world engine is configured. We configure it for different situations we're facing. Mm -hmm. This is why we can only do a single conscious task at any one time. It's because we have a single engine to kind of simulate the world, if you want, the situation at hand. And totally. so we need a, a kind of supervisor system on top of it to you know, drive it and, and know what it can do. And that's what gives us the illusion of consciousness. Yeah, the background system is multi-threaded. But the foreground system, the control system, is single-threaded. Like, you just can only do one application right. at a time. It's system one, system two, right? So system yeah. one, the stuff that we can do subconsciously, we can do multiple tasks at the same time. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to use our prefrontal cortex, uh, you know, anything like that. And then system two is, you know, the, the deliberate stuff that we have to plan. And we can only focus on, on one task at, at any one time, probably because we have one piece of hardware to do it, yeah, which is configurable right. for, you know, different... Uh, tasks. And for those listening at home, if you want to learn more about System 1, System 2, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Conrad Tversky, Nobel Prize winning uh, scientist who, who drove that, that research. Joelle, what about you? What do you think about the question of consciousness? Oh, I struggle to find a definition that I find satisfying for consciousness. We talk about it a lot, but you know, I have to be with Jan on this one. Um, I, I don't, I haven't been able to find a, a concept of it that, that, that seems useful, that seems concrete enough that we can advance from a, from a scientific point of view. The closest I've come is a notion of state, the ability to estimate state information and to have sort of a, a, an estimate of what is all the context that is relevant to making predictions, to taking decisions, to predicting the future of the world. So if you want to call that consciousness, great, I can get on board with that. I'll call it state because I feel like that's, you know, closer to sort of the, the disciplines of science and engineering I've studied. Yeah, I think uh, I'm just throwing my own two cents in here. I thought about this problem a lot as well. My sense is that I tend to agree. I think consciousness is a descriptive thing, not a prescriptive thing. We, we believe we're experiencing a contiguous consciousness. I think there's a lot of evidence that we don't experience a single contiguous consciousness, uh, but rather that decisions are made at some level of the brain and then we create a, nar a cohesive narrative on top of that, that stitches it all together and feels to us to be cohesive. Um, you know, I, and I, it's, it's hard not to look at yourself when you're in a bad mood or when you're feeling depressed or anxious and then you're not, that just doesn't feel like you're the same person. It feels like you're taking very different types of actions. It feels like your motivations are different. It's almost like you're just switching between lots of these different potential would-be frontrunners. I think they're kind of competing in there to grab the control stick. And then we have a single narrative that we tell ourselves descriptively after the fact. Uh, I don't know how useful any of this is for the average consumer, for whom it's going to be very hard to convince that uh, they don't have a consciousness, so that they have 
really a descriptive narrative process that's running after the fact that that feels because it feels like we're experiencing consciousness. And to some degree, we're asking a question of do these um, do these, uh, you know, machines, are they having an experience of consciousness? And boy, it's like a quality problem. We don't know. You can't get inside. You can't get inside and look. It's like I can't get inside of anyone else's head and look at what their experience of things is. And is it the same as mine? We kind of bumble through with language and, and imagery to try to convince ourselves that we have, we share that kind of commonality. Um, and this is kind of a, a full circle to the point I made earlier. This is where I do think this research does really raise important questions about who we are and, and what humanity is. And we keep winnowing down to an, a smaller and smaller core kernel of what it means to be human. I suppose it's possible at some point we'll winnow the whole thing away, but I don't, I don't feel we're in striking range of that, so I don't have to tackle that question today. Well, listen, we covered a lot. I, I, we're, we're just about out of time. We've, we've got to consciousness. Once you get to consciousness, it's hard to continue the conversation. You've kind of, you've kind of tapped it out. Um, I want to say thanks to you guys both uh, for being here. Uh, if people want to follow you, well, shoot, I figure they probably already are. If people want to follow you guys online. Where, should they, where, where can they go to follow your social media accounts? I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, as well as on Facebook, as well as on X, uh, though not quite as prolific as Jan, um, but, you know, it's good to usually to, to share a lot of the work that we're doing at FAIR. I'm often happy to relay, so if you want to follow that, um, definitely. And Jan, you're not as hard to find, but you want to give us a, give a, give, give a where, where, do you, where would you prefer they sign up for your updates? Uh, I'm on threads. There you Jan go. Threads. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Y-L-E-C-U-N. I'm on X, Y-L-E-C-U-N. I'm on Facebook. And so on Facebook, it tends to be kind of more longer discussions, more philosophical stuff, uh, where we have, you know, long answers and discussions. On X, you know, any, anybody <laughs> knows what X is. So it's like, you know, news, <laughs> announcements, invective, you know. Things like yeah, that, right? That's that's where Jan lights the fires. I will say, I think if you if you if, uh, Jan's Facebook uh, page is a hidden gem, you're going to get a lot of really thoughtful back and forth from a lot of times the key people in our industry looking at these topics and, and going back and forth on them, which is which is harder to do on other platforms. Um, as for me, I'm at Boz Tank on almost any of your favorite social media platforms. Most recently, lately, focusing on Threads and Instagram. Uh, you can, of course, listen to this podcast, Boss to the Future, wherever you enjoy fine podcasts. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time, thank you, Joel. Thank you, Jan, for joining us.